Welcome back to the Second Act Podcast. Today's guest is one who we couldn't have been happier to have. And I, I, I say that Jeff Perlman might be one of my favorite guests ever because I looked up to him so much as a young Sports Illustrated reader, reading his stuff, watching some of the things that he did, his unique take on things. He he pulled no punches and he was he was hugely successful. And he walked away from Sports Illustrated's dream job in the throes of it to to go try something different and he's become a huge hugely successful new york times best-selling author and and jeff sat down with us and we went through the whole story soup to nuts an incredible conversationalist an incredible articulate guy who just tells you the real raw things about what goes into a career like being a journalist and writing books for a living afterwards and it's incredible to sit down and talk to somebody who has so much in the tank and he's so willing to share it so please if you haven't heard this one before buckle up you're gonna love it welcome jeff perlman just before we get started the second act podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on treaty 7 land inhabited by the blackfoot nations this includes the siksika Pikani, and kainai we'd also like to acknowledge the sutsina and stony nakoda first nations as well as the metis nations and all people who make their home on treaty 7 land in southern alberta but now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us let's start the pod Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Podcast. And today's a very big welcome back. We took a bit of a break, but we are back. We're back with a banger. Uh, Today's guest is a very, very cool listen. We're back with former Sports Illustrated baseball writer and New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. Jeff uh, was gracious enough to, to spend some time with us and talk about his career, how he started off as a food critic and food writer in in Nashville and uh and ended up uh, at 24 years old in his dream job writing writing about uh, baseball at Sports Illustrated and walking away from it um very early in his career and uh and why he did it and, and all the things that went into that conversation and uh throughout the pod you listen to Jeff as he talks about how when he was younger he was very he was very arrogant and he got to the places he was not because you know he had all the skills but because his younger self wouldn't take anything less for a, for a victory. So he kind of pushes himself because his, for lack of a better term, because his ego needs it, he pushes himself and he does all these great things. And it's a really cool listen. And Jeff speaks about it very well. He talks about how he used to be like that. And you can tell he's moved past that, but he speaks about the way that he used to be like that very well. Yeah, and Jeff really, uh, you know, he you'll hear uh, in the intro, he kind of catches me off guard pointing out how the way we've been editing this together is um, not as intuitive um, as we may have thought it was. But uh, great listen, great, great conversation. I had so much fun with Jeff. I've actually been back and forth with him a number of times over the years, and it just didn't work out until uh, until this time. But so much fun and uh, such a great, great guest, great listen. So after about a month off here, Without any further ado, please welcome Jeff Perlman. Am I supposed to say hi? Say something, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> that was awesome. That was the clumsiest. I was like, wait, am I supposed to say something? Hello, how are you? I'm great, Jeff. I really appreciate you you taking some time on a sunny Friday. And, wait, I have uh, to interrupt you and say the reason, you should keep this, by the way, because it's funny. The reason I didn't know what to say there is because you said, please welcome Jeff Perlman. Now, Am I supposed to welcome myself by saying, hey, welcome Jeff Perlman? You know, like usually it's like we welcome Jeff Perlman. I say, hey, so that was what threw me off there. Just so you know. 
And you know what? That's great feedback. I'm going to leave it in so that uh, all the people um, that come mm-hmm. on, if they listen to one, they'll I'll say, listen to the Jeff Perlman one and we'll get the, exactly. the intro right. You sure screwed that one up. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like I, I said, I'm I'm new to this. This is uh, this will be like my mid 60s episode. I took a I took a long run at 62, and then I took some time off this summer. I'm just getting a few in the bag here before we kick off again in August, and uh, and really excited to have you on your uh, your story was kind of one of the ones that at the in the very you know beginning of this, I thought to myself, no, there's a guy who's done some really neat stuff and has a story to tell. Uh, we actually spoke about uh, the end of 2018. We emailed back and forth. Um, and then when I got, got doing this and I, I decided to take a little break, I wanted to have a few kind of fun ones and really, you know, interesting ones, um, to, to come back with. And, and, uh, when you got back to me, you know, I was, I was over the moon and really appreciate it. You've built me up. I can only disappoint. Uh, that's not true. Not with your story, sir. Your story right. is, uh, so, so it is, it is an interesting story. Um, you, you've done a lot of really interesting things and, and you've written a lot of really cool books. But uh, that's not where it starts. It starts, you know, just north of New York City in a, in a small little town. And, and you know, anyone who, who has followed you um, or, or, you know, goes to your website, it's, it's all kind of laid out there. But uh, why don't you take us a little bit through um, Little Jeffrey and, and how kind of you got decided to, that, that maybe expressing yourself through your words was something you wanted to do. Well, it's funny because I grew up in a the town is Mayo Pack, New York. And um, my parents, Joan and Stan nothing about sports no interest in sports no knowledge of sports nothing my brother older brother david nothing grandparents cousins uncles nobody knew anything about sports nobody cared about sports and one way or another i just got really into sports i started playing little league as a kid obviously i ran a lot i ran in college for a year i was a i was a dogged athlete like i wasn't a talented athlete but i was really into it and you know, I, you look back and you try to figure out what moments made the difference. And sometimes it's hard to figure out. But I, I think one of them for me was um, I grew up near the Mailpack Public Library. My house was about a mile away from the Mailpack Public Library. And we would go to the library a lot. And they used to have, my parents were too probably cheap to get Sports Illustrated, subscribe. We got Sport Magazine, which came once a month, but they wouldn't get SI. But I would go to the Mailpack Public Library and they would always have in the binders with the magazines the new Sports Illustrated. And then if you would go in the back in the shelves, they would have the stacks of the old ones. And I would just pour through those things, just pour through those things and read them and read them and read them. And then I started taking out sports books nonstop to the point where the, the librarian, one librarian in particular, would call my house and say, hey, Jeff, just so you know, we just got in the new Ron Guidry book. We just got in the new Dave Winfield book, whatever. If you come down now, we'll hold it for you. And I would run down to the library, run the mile, get the books, run home. And then my dad worked nearby in Stanford, Connecticut. He was a, a executive search guy. And he would stop at the library in Stanford and come home with books for me, bring home books for me from the sports section. And I just absorbed these things. And um, ultimately, I started writing for my high school newspaper, the, the Mailpack High School Chieftain. And I was sports editor. And then I went to University of Delaware. And I became editor and sports editor of the paper. And I just really always loved writing. Like, I loved writing. I love that you had a voice. I love that people listened to you. I love that you could piss people off. I love that you could throw people. I just, I was bitten by it very early on. And it's interesting because you do tell a, a a story about how bumpy that ride at the University of Delaware was. There was some, some, t- some times there where maybe some of the other people on there weren't as enamored with, with, the work you were doing and you wrote it out and, and you were able to understand that those words have power and how to 
use it more judiciously. You, you learned that early on. You know, I just, my wife said to me recently, um, God, you were such a jerk. How are you such a jerk? I don't really know. Like, I don't totally get it in hindsight, but I really was. I was, I was very arrogant. I thought I was like the greatest writer destined to be the greatest writer of all time. There is no such thing. It's a stupid goal. Like you just want to do well in life. And um, I was at the university of Delaware as a freshman. This is actually, it's a true story. I'm coming into my freshman year at Delaware and they had freshman orientation and you would meet, they'd line you up. You'd meet with an advisor and I meet with this advisor. She was young. Her name was Jana. And she told me, um, I'm like, I'm going to work for the paper next year, the school paper next year. And she said, well, freshmen, they don't let freshmen. I was like, well, they're going to let me because I'm I'm good enough and they're going to let me. And one day I'm going to be editor of the paper. I didn't know anything about anything. Well, it turns out she was the girlfriend of the outgoing editor of the newspaper. And she warned them all about this cocky jackass freshman who was coming, me. Yeah. And um, I got fired freshman year. I was so cocky. They stopped letting me write for the paper. They let me write at first. And then I was so cocky. They, one of the editors, actually a guy who just passed named Josh Putterman, the sports editor, pulled me aside and said, um, nobody wants you here anymore. You really need to rethink how you're doing this. It was a devastating blow for me. And um, ultimately, I wrote this long apologetic letter and they, they let me back. But I, I've sabotaged myself a million times early in my career. Well, and I think those are the the foundational building blocks of a, of a career that, you know, skin knees and, and bruises make that and and those are the the you know writer version of that but it's it's interesting that you you know you you didn't back down from it and you just you kept uh you know maybe with the attitude adjustment here and there you kept forging ahead and and stuck with a you know towards a career in journalism i think um i think one of the things like it's funny because i was like i told this woman i'm going to be editor of the student newspaper and it was such a jackass thing to say, but I did wind up editor of this dude newspaper. And when I was a kid, I told my mom, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. And she said, you have to be realistic. Well, I did wind up writing for Sports Illustrated. And like, it's almost like despite all efforts to sabotage myself, I was really driven and I was a very hard worker and I really wanted it. And when I wanted something I got in my head, I pursued it really hard. Um, I wish I could have done it looking back without being so repugnant in some ways. And I wish I could have done it without being, you know, like one of the things about youth when you're coming up in the competitive fields is you view other people as your rivals and you take on other people as the enemy. And you, it's a huge mistake. Like someone else does well and you view that as an indictment of yourself and you feel threatened by it. And I really hate that part of me that I was that way. Like just because John Wertheim writes a good article, why well, that has nothing to do with me. Why should I be resentful of him? I should be happy he's wrote a good article and i wish i could have gotten that out of my dna early but i was dogged and i did i definitely worked hard so you come out of uh the university of delaware with this you know um these lessons that you've learned plus you you've able you've been able to to hone some of that craft um and and you you start off you go to tennessee is that how that worked right out of school i went to that well, i had interned there and i got hired at the national tennessee and as a uh they had one opening. So basically I interned there. They liked my internship. It's a great summer. And um, I got hired as the food and fashion writer at the National Tennessean. <laughs> food um, and fashion. I'm like, we're wearing the same outfit right now. It looks like baseball hat, t-shirt. That's pretty much how I dress all the time. I'm wearing baggy shorts and no shoes. It's kind of how I dress. I can't cook for anything, you know, um, but they have this job opening. And um, 
but same kind of thing. Like I arrived in Nashville in the summer of 94. I was ridiculously cocky. It was a big newspaper. I got this started a big newspaper. I, I wasn't emotionally ready for it. I was a horrible, horrible reporter. I didn't know how to report it all. So um, I, if, if there's any reporting involved, I would just write through it. I'd write over it. I would call my friends for quotes, you know, an article. I was like all kinds of nonsense. I was just unprofessional and disgust, disturbing. And what happened is I screwed up enough times that I got demoted to the cops beat. They put me on the police beat. They're like, you keep screwing. I had so many errors and so many stories. They put me on the police beat. They said, do this, sit by a police scanner and just focus on who, what, where, when, how, and why. Focus on the facts. Uh, and that was a big moment in my career. It didn't cure me, but it was a big moment in my career where number one, you're someone's chopping the legs out of you and saying, you're not as good as you think you are. And number two, there's more to being a writer than just being able to write. You know, like, I actually think in hindsight, like when I was when I was a young writer at the Tennessee and I would look at the different sports writers and I would always think I'm better than that guy. 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 And I'm better than that guy. But I wasn't actually, I didn't understand that reporting and cultivating sources and building up knowledge bases and having a, a, a Rolodex filled of people to call for any circumstance is part of the whole talent and part of the whole skill. I just thought, Oh, I can turn a quick phrase, which really isn't that hard. Like, so I really learned at the Tennessean the value of reporting. Um, it's not just a car. It's a Chevy. It's a 1972 Chevy with 128,000 miles on it. It's not just a quarterback. It's a strong arm quarterback. He's a lefty. Uh, he has blonde hair. He has dirt under his eye. He blah, blah, blah. Last week, he failed to complete five of his first seven passes. Like detail, 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 detail. All those things I learned at the Tennessean. I did not arrive there with and I left with. Uh, so that was important. Well, yeah, and, and you must have been um, available to to learn those things in your time there because I mean your next stop is Sports Illustrated and and that's not uh, a place where you can slip into the cracks and land I wouldn't think I mean I was still very immature when I got to SI the thing is when I was hired there I was actually hired it was a really good thing for me I was hired as a fact checker like you get there and the first I remember I mean I was very emotional when I was offered the job because it was a dream but your job is reporter which is fact checker. You sit in the office, they give you Rick Riley's story or Gary Smith's story and you comb through it. Um, they knew my writing and they liked my writing um, that they told me, look, you have a chance to advance here, but you have to check facts. And I think that was really important for me. Checking facts, checking facts and other people's stories, uh, meticulousness, embedding that in my head, you have to be meticulous, you have to be meticulous. Really important for my development. If they had thrown me in and said, you're just going to be a writer, I wouldn't have been ready for that. I wasn't mature enough to do it at that point. That's that brings up an interesting point that just kind of popped into my head. So you were going to read the Gary Smith story or the Rick Riley story anyways, but when you're reading it under that other lens that you're being paid to fact check, is that something that forces you to be a little more introspective about your own writing and is, is a different exercise or is that something that you look back on and realize that you'd made that, that connection? No, it was enormous. I mean, the thing is, okay. Daily newspaper, like, you know, I could hang with daily newspaper writers. They were really good writers. I'm not saying I was the best writer at the Tennessean, but I, I, I was a good writer there. I, I could hang my own. I just didn't know how to report. But then you get to Sports Illustrated and you're reading. I mean, I couldn't write like Rick Riley or Gary Smith or Alex Wolf or any of those. They were so much better than me. There were so many levels above. So you're sitting there and you're reading them and, and you're picking the stories apart. 
and you see the devices they used and you see the language they used and just work like Gary Smith, as an example, I don't even know if I ever fact checked a story of his, but we, we, he was discussed nonstop. Like I want to hear him say every word I write matters. Like every word matters. And I now feel the same way. And I'm not saying I'm Gary Smith at all, but like every word does matter. There's a reason you pick words. And when I'm reading my stories out loud, before I send them in, I'm reading them and I'm listening for the words and does it, how it feels and the bounce and the texture and does it fit? And I mean, I learned that from reading him and from reading Riley and from reading Alex and Richard Hoffer and Michael Farber, like they all, every word, they, they were not throwaway words. They didn't just say, hey, I'm just going to, never, no throwaway words. And I was, as a newspaper writer, I had tons of throwaway words. And that was a real important lesson for me. Yeah. And that, uh, that's like, I mean, that's got to be something that's huge all these years later. That's like one of the things, you know, as soon as we started talking about it, you were like, that's the one, that's the thing. That was what I took from that part of my career. And I think it's building on those, those foundational lessons all the way through that, uh, that, you know, especially when you get to go through a place like Sports Illustrated and, you know, if you don't take those things with you, maybe, maybe it looks way different coming out of it. Right. Oh, I mean that like, Seriously, like me going to SI. So I was I was 24 years old. I was coming out of two years of the National Tennessee and I was hired by SI. That's like a that's like a single A ball player getting called up to the Yankees. You know, that's yeah. what it was. And I was getting called up to have a very limited role. So I was like being called up in September to be the fourth catcher. But I was it was deep end stuff. And I remember even when I got promoted, I've I just talked about this today with someone. I was promoted to staff writer. And SI, you know, SI used to be the place. And they would, every December, they'd fly in every writer across the country to New York for a state of the magazine meeting. And then they'd have the office holiday party, which would be this huge, lavish, kick-ass party. And I remember being in the room, and you're in this room, and you're me, 26 maybe. And I'm surrounded by Riley and Russian and, again, Gary Smith and Lee Montville. And... I said, I always say I was Christian Leitner on the dream team, on the 92 dream team. Like I did not belong on that team and I'm looking around and I'm just, it's just a dream come true. It's ridiculous. So yeah, it's amazing. So we can't, we can't talk about the, the, the Jeff Perlman era at sports illustrated uh, without, I think you probably know where this is going. Bagwell story. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah. Right. Hey, yeah. Um, So just talk about that John Rocker's, how that all went down because i mean i remember it i was you know i was probably a couple of years out of high school and and i was a braves fan i was a big dave justice guy we had tbs up in canada so we had all the braves games in a manner that you can just get your regional sports network to play your favorite teams games and we had this dave justice guy and he was just the guy he looked like a ball player and i loved him so i was aware of this john rocker fella but i just I just never had any idea until, of course, this this story explodes on this on the screen. Talk a little bit about that and and how that affected your your career. First, I just want to say about Dave Justice two things. Number one, he was a prick to cover, and number two, he um he cheated on a Halle Berry. And I remember being Halle Berry was my crush of crushes for a period. I remember being like, "Wait, you you cheated on Halle Berry? Like, <laughs> you." You cheated on Halle Berry, is it? I mean, I just I remember being like, I mean, I, I just couldn't understand how anyone would cheat on Halle Berry in my young mind. I just that was my David Justice thing. I think of Halle Berry. Um, I mean, 
it's probably my money story. It's my lifetime money story. If everyone has a money story, mine is John Rocker. Money meaning you tell it over and over again because it's just still funny. Is it's 1999. I'm a young baseball writer at SI. I'm 27. And um, the Braves are playing the Mets in the NLCS. I think it was the NLCS. And it was. And um, they had this pitcher, John Rocker, who was kind of loud and brash and very good relief pitcher. So I was assigned to write a piece on John Rocker. And I, um, the problem with playoffs is you don't get that much access because there was a ton of media. So I would, I would go to Shea Stadium. I'd get a few minutes here and a few minutes there. I told him I was doing a story. He gave me a number of his parents, Jake and Judy. I interviewed them over the phone. And I ended up writing a pretty pedestrian story about John Rocker. And one thing I always tell young writers now is uh, you should never go into a story knowing what you're going to write. And I went into that story knowing what I was going to write. It was going to be the story of the pitcher who's misunderstood. It was going to be, he's, he seems like a jackass, but he's really a decent guy. And that is the story I wrote. I wrote that story. And the final scene of that story was John Rocker as a child cradling his dead dog with tears streaming down his cheeks. And it's a sympathetic portrait. Well, I submit the story. Braves go on to the World Series and get swept by the Yankees, as you probably remember. And um, so the story never runs because you're not going to run it right after the team is swept by the Yankees. So my editor, Dick Friedman, says, why don't you go and freshen it up? Go down, try to get time with him. So I called his agent, who's Joe Sambito, former major leaguer. I told him I want my plan. And he's like, oh, that's great. You're going to love John. You should totally spend time with him. He's the best. All right, I'll go hang out with the best. So I fly down to Atlanta. He picks me up. I knew very early this was going to be a different kind of day. We're, uh, we're driving on the a highway. And uh, we approach a toll booth. And he throws in money into the change basket. The thing doesn't open. He spits on the toll booth like hucks a loogie on it. The guy behind him honks. Rocker literally rolls down the window, sticks up his middle finger, says, hey, F you. Um, there's a person driving erratically before us. Rocker starts complaining about Asian women and how they can't drive. The guy driving the car is white as we pass him. We go to a school for disadvantaged kids where Rocker talks. He uh, They play his theme song, which was I Want to Rock by Twisted Sister, as he comes out. He palms the CD as we leave. Um, he goes on to tell me how much he hates foreigners, just can't stand foreigners, hates New York, hates taking the subway. As a teammate, he calls a, a fat monkey, a black teammate, he calls a fat monkey. Um, he was just an asshole. Like, he just wasn't a nice guy, you know, and he was gross. And the interesting thing is, um, like, I'm a weird audience for John Rocker to go off. I'm a liberal Jewish New Yorker. Yeah. But the thing is, as a writer, that actually should not make a difference. And I don't think it did. Like, it's not my job to protect a guy. Like, I'm here. You know what I am. I have a notepad and a tape recorder going. Um, and he just kept talking and talking and talking. I think he thought we were two white guys in a car. And I always say, like, I'm not there to debate you. So you're giving me who you are. You're telling me who you are. It is not my role as a reporter to say, I don't know, man. I actually think the diversification of America is a great thing, blah, 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 blah. Like, that's not my role. So I finish. I'm, the day ends. He drops me off. I called my mom. I was like, I'm very close to my mom. I'm like, I don't know what the hell just happened. This is the weirdest thing ever. And uh, story ultimately comes out. I write it. He does not like it at all. I don't, I understand that. It blows up. It goes viral pre-social media, you know, just everywhere. He's, Will Farrell does a sketch on Saturday Night Live mocking John Rocker and he's suspended and fined and all that stuff. And he confronts me later in Atlanta, which is part two of the story, which is crazy in and of itself. 
It's the craziest experience of my life by far, journalistically. And like, I, I appreciate all the things you say. And like, you're, you're there under no false pretenses. He understands why you're there. Yeah. Um, and, and I, we talk about this a lot on the podcast about um, the lack of self-awareness can often be mistaken for a number of, you know, negative things. And, and people just don't understand how they're coming across to people. Do you think that was the case or did he just not literally not care? Okay, it's very interesting you say that. It's an interesting point. Like, there are times in my life, I tend to curse a lot, right? There are times in my life where I've cursed for effect and then realized later that was a bad idea, right? You're like, you're like, oh, that really wasn't, oh, he's a Mormon. You know, he's a devout yeah. Mormon. For example, and you're like, wow, I didn't know that. That was really... I think he was showing off. I think he was trying to peacock. I really right. do. I think he was peacocking. And I think he thought we were two white guys in a car. I really do. I just think he thought we were two white guys in a car driving around and like, sorry, man, not all white guys think like you do, you know, like just, yeah, don't, you know? So I don't know. It was weird. Well, and that's, that's actually one of the pieces of advice I got very early from a friend who's involved with a bunch of different things. And when I told him I was going to start a podcast, he was like, be very careful. Nobody cares what two white guys think. He's like, don't like you can't just make this two white guys talking about how their careers gotten so much better since they've made these changes he's like you got to have people from all the different walks who've doing different things who who haven't had success in their second act yet because it's he's like the, the people can get their fill of two white guys so it's interesting even back then that he thought people would want to read about it i guess i would tell you factually that diversity in newsrooms has benefited my career in so many ways and i'll tell you real a divergent stories when I was at the University of Delaware, my hero was a guy named Mike Freeman, a writer named Mike Freeman, who also came out of Delaware. And at the time, he was covering the New York Giants for the New York Times. And I used to send him my clips, and he would mark up my clips. And I wrote a story about an African-American administrator at Delaware. And I wrote the headline. I, his name was uh, Ron Whittington. Ron Whittington. And my headline was, I'm no Uncle Tom, or something like that, right? And I also had a depiction of him strutting around the office. I use the term strutting. And Mike Freeman, I, I will never forget this. I have the clip here, wrote me and said at length, number one, that headline is awful. Despite the context of the story, that's awful. You can't do that. And number two, you have to be careful how you depict people of colors, what adjectives you use, uh, what verbs you use. Strutting depicts something that you wouldn't think, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like, um, I just, I've learned like, your friend's right. Like there's a value in understanding how other people think, seeing how things come off, seeing how things are perceived. You're not just, you know, like we're not just one monolithic world where everyone shares our viewpoints, you know? And um, so, yeah, I, I'm with that hundred percent. So you, you've managed to, to get through the, uh, the John Rocker episode just fine, but does that kind of take a little bit of the shine off of that for you? Or at that point were you already thinking, longer form more in depth and and you know authoring novels and, and books was something you're interested in no not at all i um i mean the rocker thing was horrible but it was also probably good for my career like it wasn't bad for my career but it was embarrassing but it was it was all right um what happened was i was i really had a moment um 2001 world series i was covering it it was yankees diamondbacks it was right after 9 11 very much so just telling my son literally last night i was telling my son about I'm as liberal as you can get. One of the best moments I've ever experienced was George Bush throwing out 
the first pitch off yep. the off towing the rubber at Yankee Stadium. It was maybe the last beautiful political moment we've had in this country. Well, we had Obama too, but you know, a beautiful political moment. Um, I was covering that World Series. It was either game two or three at Yankee Stadium. Uh, and I got sick. My I had started having stomach pains and I had to leave the game. I was with Tom Verducci, Steve Canella. I left. I wasn't writing on deadline. And I went home and I was watching it on my then girlfriend's couch. She's now my wife. Watching the end of the game. And it was a game where one of the Yankees, I think Scott Brosis, hit a home run to win the game in extra innings. An all-time great World Series game. Place is going crazy. And I'm so freaking happy to be on my wife's couch. Girlfriend's couch. Like, I'm not going to have to deal with the post-game scrum. I'm not going to have to deal with the cliches. I'm not going to have the back of a TV camera slam me in the head and a group of reporters. I'm not going to, I'm just, I'm not going to have to deal with that. I didn't care who won the World Series. I didn't even care about the game. And I had a real awakening at that moment where I was like, if I'm a baseball writer and I don't want to be at one of the great World Series games of all time, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. You know, like maybe this just isn't isn't right. And that's when I started looking to leave. And it's weird because I it was my dream to work at SI, but I just was tired. So there was a newspaper, Newsday, and uh, they, you alluded to it somewhat correctly, somewhat incorrectly. It was It's kind of confusing. It was a newspaper on Long Island, and they had an opening where they, they were looking for someone to write long magazine-style features for their, their entertainment section. The job was to roam New York City and just write, just write about people, not athletes. And I applied for that job and left SI, and I was 30 years old. If you told me when I got hired at SI, I'd be leaving SI by choice at 30, would have never bought it, but I did. That's yeah. I mean, that's it. Seems like in the chronology of your of your career to this point, um, it, it is something that you kind of had to have major gut check and walk away from. Um, but but you ended up at at Newsday writing these longer form, not necessarily sports based uh, pieces. And was that just like was that a moment where you were like, what have I done, or was that just another piece in the puzzle to, to become Jeff Perlman, the book author. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't doing it thinking that it was, it was a weird move. Like it was weird. It's kind of like how uh, I always say like your favorite artist has that one album that nobody listened to. That's my Newsday album. Like when people <laughs> ask me about my career, Newsday almost never comes up. It was like a year. It was a sliver, but it worked out well for me. Uh, number one, the Bad Guys won my first book, came out when I was in Newsday. And that book turned out being a big seller for me and kind of propelled me on my way. Number two, like, I always think you're better off leaving somewhere early than late. I just do. I always think you, and that's how I felt at SI. Like, I could have stayed another five years or maybe 10 years. But at some point, it wasn't going to end well. Like, it just wasn't. The magazine was starting to slip and you could see some holes and some cracks in what was going on. And, you know, it just, it wasn't. It wasn't, I don't know. And so I think in hindsight, it set me on this path of writing books. I never thought about writing books. I never thought it'd be a career. And it's been my favorite part of my career so far. So I guess it worked out okay. Well, yeah. And you've you've written, um, you know, with your with your reporting background, you've kind of seen these stories happen and you've seen like maybe you didn't cover the 86 Mets, but you covered people that were involved with them. So the seedling of that idea and, you know, um, Bonds, I think was a, was a reasonable choice at that point of in time, but like the Cowboys, uh, boys will be boys. The the bad guys won. Um, Showtime. Some of those ones, like even if you weren't there in the scrums, 
you knew people, you'd covered athletes that were, you knew some of the front office people. And I think that was, you know, it, it's not like, I just, I went through your list this morning and it, it's not a linear list of, oh yeah, he did that book and it makes sense that he would go to that one and all the way through. And, and I think that's interesting too, because there's a couple of them uh, that we can talk about, but, but the two that I really want to talk about are sweetness and specifically about how, um, you know, a book that's released in 2011 about, about Walter Payton, who the NFL man of the year award is named after at that point and had been for about 10 years. Uh, and it wasn't, um, always that. So I'm curious what the reception maybe even to this day is in Chicago for you and, and how that, like, it it might not have been a firestorm, but it, it had to have been some, some, you know, when you're doing press for the book and, and stuff like that, you had to have had some, you know, interesting conversations about it. It was a very weird, very weird experience. So basically I wrote that book. I put my freaking, I put everything I had into that book. I mean, I really did. I worked so hard on that book and um, I was really proud of it. And uh, a couple of weeks before the book was going to come out, Sports Illustrated ran an excerpt on the front cover. I literally have the magazine cover framed behind me. If you look right there and, oh, yeah. and um and si decided to do an excerpt and the excerpt they ran which i was totally fine with people were like you mad at si i was like no I, they, I, they did me a favor was toward the end of the book and it was basically walter Payton's struggles after football and he had suicidal tendencies uh he was addicted to painkillers and he he had a kid out of wedlock who he didn't really he never met um etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, at his hall of fame induction ceremony he um he had his girlfriend in row three and his wife in row one, you know, like all kinds of crazy. So that was the excerpt. The book hadn't come out yet. The excerpt runs. It does not play well in Chicago at all, at all. Uh, Mike Dicka went on TV. He was asked what he would say to the author if he, he was there and he spit. So that's what I'd say to him. There was a TV station or a radio station that did a book burning uh, live on air. My Mike Wilbon went after me hard, which I, did not appreciate um still pissed off about that it was a nonsense column um because it sucks when it's someone you respect that really drives me crazy. right um, yeah whatever though he's right and um i was supposed to go to chicago and promote the thing and they didn't send me like i i'm big into every book i do i print out postcards and i go into a parking lot and i put them in car windows every book i do still to this day they were like we're not sending you to do that you're gonna get your ass kicked in chicago and yeah. i didn't so it was rough. It was a really rough, awful experience. A publishing company, it was Gotham Books, which doesn't exist. Their PR efforts are horrible. One of the publicists was a nightmare. The whole thing just sucked. And I got so many angry emails, letters. How could you do this to Walter? Now, then the book came out. And all of a sudden, I was getting apologies from people. And you know what? I read that book. That was a really good book. You, I, that was misleading the way people. And that felt really good. But it didn't take away from the fact that there were moments when I honestly felt like crawling under my desk and sobbing because it was such a freaking backlash. It really hurt. It really hurt. Well, and I, I think of of a guy like Wilbon who, you know, um, and I makes, respect he, him. I just want to say I'm a Wilbon admirer, to be clear. Absolutely. But he makes, you know, he's he's like uh, Greenberg with his Jets fandom, with his Chicago sports fandom. He's he's got this platform on ESPN, but he kind of makes no bones about the fact that he, he's a, he's a Chicago fan. And I just, I, I think 
that it would be really hard to watch somebody of that stature. It'd be like, you know, I guess Tom Verducci kind of going after you a little bit, like somebody who's so respected within the, within the industry and has that platform. And you just be like, dude, you know, this wait till the book comes out, read the book. Well, that was my thing. Like I, I, I would never, I don't get mad at people for giving bad reviews because you have a right to write a bad review, right? If you don't like the book, that's fair. I don't mind if someone's thinks I took an unfair shot, blah, 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 all that stuff. I'm kind of like with you. Read the book, man. Like, you didn't even read the book. Like, read. Yeah. It was just, to me, it was very amateurish. It was amateur hour from a guy who's a real professional. And, like, it's, I get, I'm not a fan of, of sports writers being uh, fans of teams. I don't really support that. But that crossed the line. Also, I just want you to know someone is looking in your back door. Oh. She's trying to break my- in. Yeah, it's my daughter. She's, Don't let her steal anything. I'm just saying. She's looking <laughs> sketch. So the the la- the other book of yours that I'm interested in, and and I so I, I was a, a active Twitter user for about eleven or t- ten or eleven years, and last year, um, through the the COVID and stuff, I just had to get off of it. But I followed you for years, and so I, I kind of understand the backstory. But I really want to talk about your your take on football for a buck and, and the usfl and and then of course how trump played into that um because i feel like and, and you said it a lot that that there was the market for that book was as hard as as big as you were going to make it by driving it out there yeah. and and it was a passion project and then all kind of out of nowhere one of the central figures is is right there on your lap for you to take it and run it across the goal line how did that all come about wait first i want to ask you a question are you happier without twitter uh yeah much happier yes i i might be you know i need to sell books and i need to you know and also it's a good way to reach out to people man i hate twitter i hate it but use it hate it but use it so i'm um it's like crack it's actually like crack um congratulations for putting down the pipe that's seriously that's uh, (laughs) impressive um i would trade every book sale i've had in the history of my life for the trump presidency to never have happened and i'm not just saying that i would make that trade right now if someone came along and said um, so I took no joy in like, oh, this is building up attention for the book. I would give it all away. I really would. I would be a plumber and happy yeah. and never be a sports writer for to save the ruination that that was. Nothing against plumbing. I mean, it's an admirable job. Um, it was super weird. So I, I love the USFL. As a kid, I love the USFL. I mentioned to you, I used to go to the Mailpack Library. And I remember going to my library and seeing Herschel Walker on the cover of a SI and the headline was hitting pay dirt and it was him in a general's jersey and there's a usfl preview for 1983 first season you open it up and there are all these super cool helmets and these uniforms and i was like i'm in i'm in on this 100 percent." when i was a senior in high school mr heights class ap english my thesis we had to write a senior thesis in high school was about the downfall of the usfl Papers were supposed to be at max 20. I handed 40 pages about the downfall of the USFL. I was all about the USFL. So I always wanted to write this book. Agent, no. Agent, no. Nobody's going to want a USFL book. I tried pitching it. No, no, no. Finally, what happened is I attached it to a Brett Favre bio. And I said, what if I do a Favre bio? Uh, This is Houghton Mifflin. If I write Favre, will you let me do USFL for cheap? And they said, okay. I ended up loving the Favre experience, actually. So it worked out okay. Um, did the USFL book. It was super weird because I'm reporting it as Trump is running for president. 
And I'll give you a, like a quick example of the weirdness of it is um, he signed Doug Flutie. Remember? Oh, Doug Flutie, Canada. Of course. Doug Absolutely. Flutie. Yeah. Right. He, uh, he signed Doug Flutie out of Boston College to New Jersey Generals and paid him the biggest contract in pro football history, which is actually laughable because Doug Flutie probably would have been a fifth round NFL draft pick. You know, at the time, small quarterbacks were not a thing. But Trump, you know, wants to make a splash. So he drafts Flutie, pays him this ridiculous contract sends a letter to all the other owners saying, um, I have signed Doug Flutie. This is saving our league. It's the biggest thing for our league. And I expect all of you to help pay. And literally sends them all a letter insisting that they all contribute to Doug Flutie's contract. This is the same exact time he's talking about Mexico is going to build the wall. We're going to build the wall. Mexico is going to pay for it. And I'm like, holy crap. Doug Flutie was the Mexico wall before the Mexico wall. Like, it's the same device, the same exact technique. Um, there was an owner, another Canadian, John Bassett, who owned the Tampa Bay Bandits. And um, he was the one guy who stood up to Donald Trump, U.S. of owner, who stood up to Donald Trump, saw him for what he was. And John Bassett, late in the U.S. of our run, developed, was diagnosed with brain cancer, wound up dying. Trump stomped all over him. It was John McCain 30 years earlier. I mean, over and over, the lying the deception, the bullying, the bragging. It, I was like, this is a play, but this is it. This is the exact thing 30 years later. I wound up on some news shows. I wound up doing Morning Joe. and do, But I, I was amazed, not amazed. I was disappointed, not for my book, just for America, how few people were willing to see the insane parallels. And that was the same stick 30 years later. Yeah, and I, I think it was, was it Bassett that wrote him the note that he was like, if I see I'm it, I'm this... note. I keep it hanging on my wall. I have it right here in front of me. Yeah, Bassett wrote the best note ever. I will punch you in the face. Yep. It's just, and and like, you know, all politics aside, um, I uh, I just, as I was following along through that journey, it was like every time some other, the craziest thing ever happened, within about a week, there'd be like some USFL you know tidbit that came along and it was like like you said it was the same device everything was the same about it so it's the whole fool me once shame on me fool me twice shame on you like he's yeah it's ridiculous you know so you're uh you're you've got a bunch of books i mean your your 10th book uh is coming out this this fall right i, I believe it's the 10th one October. yeah number 10 so what why don't you talk a little bit about uh what you got up your sleeve for uh the fall of 2022 well, it's called The Last Folk Hero. It's a biography of Bo Jackson. It's the most people I've ever interviewed for a book, 720. I can tell you that literally sitting here on my desk, on my cracked end desk, I have this brick from Bo Jackson's childhood home. It was from the foundation of the home. It is now overgrown with weeds and it's it's nothing. It's not like it's a historic site. It's literally an empty field with a bunch of like broken bottles. But I, I went to Bessemer, Alabama and picked up a brick. And I just, I'm all in on Bo Jackson. I grew up loving Bo Jackson. I'm a kid of the 80s and 90s. And um, he was it. He was the greatest athlete I've ever seen. I think he's the greatest athlete who's ever lived. Um, it's like the name, the, you know, the subhead is the life and myth of Bo Jackson because it's sometimes in sports, mythology and and real. What Like, did he run a 4-1-3? Did he jump over a car? Did he do this? Did he do that? And almost always the answer is yes, he did. So it's pretty amazing. Well, and uh, for me, uh, I was born in 1978. For me, Bo knows the whole Bo knows ad campaign was 
was the precursor to the rest of those sports. There might've been ones before that I just wasn't, you know, aware enough to catch, but, but to me, that's where, like, that's where I was like, okay, that this guy changed the world by, by doing this. And I'll tell you that the interesting thing about that campaign, one of many interesting things is um, he wasn't very charismatic and he's not very charismatic. He also was a stutterer. Now he's gotten a stutter under control, but if you watch those ads, he doesn't say very much. It's really built around the idea of this two sport athlete. And he says very little in them because he's not that charismatic. Um, but what he was doing was so utterly preposterous and impressive. To me, the moment, like the moment where it just all came together and it was like this quote, is the 1989 All-Star Game. Tony LaRussa has him lead off for the American League. And it's in Anaheim. It's this beautiful California day. The sun is just starting to set. Everything is perfect. The sky is clear blue. Ronald Reagan is in the booth with Vin Scully calling the first inning. And Bo Jackson leads off and he's wearing his resplendent white uniform, muscles atop muscles bursting through. Rick Russell is starting for the Giants. He's a 40-year-old pitcher. Second pitch he throws, Bo. Bo hits it dead center out of the park. And it's just, and Nike had paid for Bono. The first big Bono ad campaign was during the All-Star game. So the ad would be playing a few innings later. And there's this, I, I love that moment so much. I've watched it so many times. Yeah, that's, and it's like those little things that you look back on, um, you know, because we we have the ability now because everything's recorded. You can just piece that together. Back then, that was like, um, you know, it really truly was a, a special thing. To, and then you talk about having first Vin Scully. I mean, nowadays, the, the local team's announcer doesn't call the All-Star game, right? Like there's the the circuses that go on inside the booths for these things. And it's just, you know, the president of the United States or the former president of the United States is in the booth with them. It's, it's just such a different time and place. And this is where our, our sports world is. That's, that was where the seed of our current sports world germinated. So it's interesting to see those parallels. Yeah. And it's, um, it was, a, I hate to be cliche. It was a little more of an innocent time in sports. And you, the thing is like, I remember being a kid, you probably do too. Like the all-star game was a huge deal because you didn't see these guys that often. Like I remember being a kid and the San Diego Padres had, I was at summer camp, sleepaway camp, 1982. Rupert Jones was an outfielder for the Padres. And I just always thought Rupert Jones, that's such a great name. And I remember watching all-star game introductions and there's Rupert Jones in his brown and yellow, ugly ass Padres hat. And, but the ugly, but cool. Right. And yeah. just, this was my one time and he's standing next to Pedro Guerrero from the Dodgers. And you're like, this is amazing. And like, you didn't get to see Bo Jackson that much. You certainly didn't get to see him facing Rick Russell, throwing to Benito Santiago. You know, it was just the whole thing was so innocent and cool. So at this point, you're you're going to release uh, the Bo Jackson book, um, but but you're not the only author in your family. I I noticed a couple of posts that you had that your your wife is is um, sending some, so or has some books out or a book out. Um, it's it's got to be interesting to watch and and her her she's a clinical psychologist or she's a social worker PhD. social worker yeah so phd social worker so the things that you're writing about and the things that she's writing about obviously very different however the you know the art is still similar what's that look like to sit back and watch um you know somebody take their take on what you do in in a subject matter that's so much different so it's funny. Her name's Catherine Perlman. She's awesome. Her new book, I'll just play, is called First Phone. It's a child's guide to digital responsibility, safety, and etiquette. It's great. Um, we all, I have kids, the nightmare of them getting their phones 
are your kids old enough they have cell phones yes they are it sucks it's actually right i mean like off topic little if you think about it like <laughs> we're literally handing our kids these devices i actually laugh at people who complain about who want to ban books from schools i'm like does your kid have a cell phone because if your kid has a cell phone you should just shut up because your kid can look up absolutely anything yeah and if you don't think they're looking up elephant porn you have another thing coming like it's insane you know like um so my wife wrote a book about it and um she's been we've been married for 20 years she does not have a journalism background she's she's proofread every one of my books she's been a great editor a great support years ago she she said she wanted to write a book but she didn't have the background she didn't do it and then she just a couple years ago she wrote her first book called ignore it it's a parenting book it's great and i'm just really proud of her you know we don't with totally different kinds of writing it's different approaches to writing um but she's she's brilliant and she's awesome and like i would love for her book her book selling is much more important than my book selling to me like i really want her book because it's genuinely helpful for people and for parents and it's so much more worthwhile than mine yeah and that's uh i'm glad you said it but it was like her her book can can there's a there's a family out there that's really struggling with it and her book may be able to help them um you know nobody's out there struggling with a lack of bo jackson knowledge oh. as, as much fun as that is to read about right wait i would tell you actually when people say like you get this ass sometimes what either what do you want your legacy to be or what do you want people to get from the book and every time i'm same thing i don't care about my legacy i don't really have one you die and nobody remembers you but number two like i just want people to enjoy it like that's it i want you to have whatever your troubles are in life whatever your stress is your job or politics or work or sickness or COVID that you can go home and kick back on a couch or a hammock and read about Bo Jackson and just really enjoy yourself. That is it. That is all you have to get from the book. And you're right. Like my wife's book is a million times more important than my book. I, I, there's no doubt about it. So what's the last or the next, uh, book, the ultimate book? Like if, if the USFL was like that pet project and you managed to pull that off, what's the next one that, that not and maybe not the next one that you're really going to do the next one that you really want to do so all right so i signed a uh i recently signed a three book deal and i can't name them all i'm working on one now i'm super paranoid so i can't but one of the books is it's a total they threw it in they were nice and they threw me in harper collins thank you um i'm writing a memoir about my just my two and a half years in nashville the tennessee and I've just really wanted to for years and uh, it'll probably sell four copies, but I was just such a train wreck. I was just such a train wreck and such a young idiot when it comes to everything, uh, love life, sex life, writing, common sense, decency, everything. And I've always wanted to write about it because I'm always telling stories about it. So I'm very, very psyched. And the other one I always want to write, I'll never write it because nobody will buy it is um, there's a band called blind melon, Do you know, blind melon. Oh yeah, for sure. Shannon Hoon. Shannon Hoon. And um, I grew up loving Blind Melon. Or not grow, grew up when I was in college. I love Blind Melon. I still love Blind Melon. And I would love to write a Blind Melon book, but nobody's buying a Blind Melon book. And you got to eat. So You'd have to tie it in with uh, who was, because they opened, there was a, some connection to Guns N' Roses with Rose. Del James or something. No, it was Shannon Hoon. He grew up in Indiana and he knew Axl Rose oh. growing up. Uh, and he was oh. in Don't Cry, the video for Don't Cry, the song Don't Cry. Feature yep. Shannon, but there are five people who remember Shannon. Who were being honest, 
Yeah. Well, that's, it's, it's, uh, yeah, those are, I mean, I've got, uh, I've got a couple of those little ideas in my head too, but it's like, man, you got to find, you got to find an audience for this stuff or else it's just a labor of love. Right. Yeah. Or maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm retired and, you know, if I'm lucky to reach an older age, you're retired and you just have some free time and you're not doing it for the money. And you just think I'm going to write that Shannon book. And if nobody reads it, that's cool. I, I know I did it. I, I like to end the podcast um, every time. I, I always try to get a feel for, you know, all as people segue through their careers and make these changes and do different things. What What is the, your idea of success today? And does it look anything like you maybe thought it was going to when you decided you were going to write books full time and go away from the dream job at Sports Illustrated? And and how is that? How is all the different successes and, and peaks and valleys in between shape that view of success for you? So um, that's a good question. I see. I thought you were going to say when I started my career, because when I started my career, my idea of success was preposterous. My idea of success was be great. Like you're yeah. just going to be great. You're going to be great. You're going to be the best writer. Be the best writer ever. I mean, it's, it's so stupid. And uh, in fact, when people say to me every now and then, someone would be like, "You're my favorite writer," and I'm like, "Really?" do not read like do you know you know there are other books right um you know like i just think as you get older the idea of like greatness or writing the great blah 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 it doesn't really exist anymore like i i i just like my kids now my daughter's a freshman in college my son is entering his junior year of high school i've seen them through most of their youth I barely missed anything. Like I was around for everything. I was a class dad. I was a little league coach. Uh, everything. I was. I knew the teachers. And that's all. I wanted that so badly as I came along. Like I wanted that so badly. And now that my kids are, you know, kind of getting older and near the house, like I just think really contentedness and trying to enjoy your life and doing projects that you really look forward to doing. Um, you know, one of my books became an HBO show. Winning Time became that HBO show. Like, it was just so freaking fun. Like, it was just fun, you know? And like, I really am starting to value these experiences more. Like, just enjoying it and getting some fulfillment out of it. And also, like, the other thing that I never thought about when I was younger, like, helping other writers out, making their paths easier, just giving people some encouragement and making them feel good about themselves. Like, there's, there are a lot of writers I looked up to who wouldn't give me the time of day, you know? and that's not cool, you know? And I just think if I can, if there are writers who look at me and see, oh, here's a guy who's, and he can help me, I freaking love that. So not to sound too goody two shoes, but all that stuff kind of matters. What a fun conversation. And Jeff couldn't have been more, you know, accommodating, talking about all the the fun things that people that have followed his career want to talk about the, the John Rocker story, um, the books and the blowback from the Walter Payton book and the Donald Trump uh the Donald Trump factor in the in the USFL, and I mean his gunslinger book was was Brett Favre kind of through some of the uh, the Farviness most Farviness stuff that was happening, and and he uh, you know he does so much homework that is uh, people don't take a shot at him for uh, for his information. Um, they just may not always love the way he presents it, but that's you know his his prerogative as the author, and he uh, he takes on. Uh, unbelievable fun subjects and he does a, a thorough great job on him and then he also talks about like parenting and and what comes out of that part of his life and his wife is a is a successful PhD social worker who has things on the go too that he 
is trying to juggle as well. And, and it goes to show that achieving something that you may think is the pinnacle early in your career probably tells you that you weren't aiming high enough. And, and I think that's kind of what Jeff has determined is, is what he thought was success early in his career was, was not close to it. And he talks about it at the end, how, you know, there were people in his life at, at that point in his career that, that weren't um, always great to him. And he strives to be, to be better than that for, for the people moving forward. And I think the more people that make those realizations and, and realize that uh, somebody else's win isn't your loss, it's not a zero-sum game, uh, the, the better everybody is going forward. Uh, it was so great to be back in front of the microphone here um, recording a couple. We've got a few in the bag. We've got a few more scheduled. Uh, we're really looking forward to to getting these out and getting them to people so that uh, we can start to share these stories again. So it's like we've said all the way along, there are no wrong answers. There's no test at the end. So make the most out of every day. The second act of the podcast, we'd like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. That is www.bensound.com. We'd also like to thank Chin Whiskers for the promotional consideration. You can find them at your local Tommy Guns, Original Barbershop, Amazon, or chinwhiskers.ca. And we would also like to thank you for listening. Test the microphone. No mmm noise.